Good morning, everybody. Merrill and I together have 53 years' experience in the United States Foreign Service. Today we plan to touch with a very broad brush on a few of the incidents which we were involved with and relate them to broader Cold War events. The Cold War lasted from 1947 until the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. In 1953, I graduated with an MA degree from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. The United States was engaged in the Korean War, one of the major conflicts of the Cold War. Faced with military service, I felt very fortunate to be selected for Navy Officer Candidate School, followed by six months at Naval Intelligence School. During one hectic week in April 1954, Marilyn and I got married. I was commissioned as an ensign in the U.S. Navy and passed the final oral examination for the Foreign Service. From 1954 until 1957, I served as a naval intelligence officer in Hawaii. After completing my Navy obligation, I entered the Foreign Service in 1957. Our first post was the Embassy in Santiago, Chile. Fidel Castro overflew, overthrew Batista on January 1, 1959, and Castro's revolutionary fervor began to sweep over Latin America. In Chile, this meant increasing pressure for the nationalization of the American-owned copper mines, which were the lifeblood of the Chilean economy. At that time, a man by the name of Orlando Letelier was an official in the Chilean government copper department, and he became a regular contact of mine. Some years later, Letelier ended up in Washington, D.C. as one of the major opponents of the Pinochet regime in Chile, you'll remember. General Pinochet organized the car bombing which killed Letelier in downtown Washington in 1976. One early aspect of the Cold War was a Russian effort to control National trade, union, national trade unions wherever they existed. The World Federation of Trade Unions was dominated by the communists. The US did, and in, but in 1949, non-communist labor groups created the International Confederation of Free Trade Unions. The U.S. Department of State organized a small cadre of foreign service officers dedicated to countering communist efforts and strengthening non-communist trade unions. I spent half my career in such efforts, reporting on labor developments, working with quasi-non-governmental organizations, training labor union leaders, and selecting foreign government and trade union officials for visits to the U.S. 
Being a union leader can be perilous in the best of times, but even more so in underdeveloped countries. In addition to losing several several labor leaders with whom I had direct contact, I also lost a very good friend, Mike Hammer, who was assassinated in El Salvador while working with the American Institute for Free Labor Development. Mike was buried in the Arlington National Cemetery by a special act of Congress. Another aspect of the Cold War was the competition in outer space. The Russians were the first to orbit a satellite and to put a man into orbit. NASA needed a satellite tracking station in the Indian Ocean area to track the Apollo rockets and John Glenn's projected orbital flights. Zanzibar Island, a British protectorate, was an optimal site. In addition, Zanzibar was slated to become independent late in 1964, so it was logical to open a U.S. consulate there in anticipation. I was one of two U.S. officers selected to open the new consulate. Zanzibar was a divided society ruled by a sultan and a dominant land-owning Arab minority. The majority of the population was African and still resentful over a past history of slavery. Zanzibar attained independence in December 1963. A month later, in January 1964, a racially-based revolution overthrew the sultan massacred thousands of Arabs, and installed a provisional government which quickly became radicalized. The Russians, the East Germans, and the Chinese quickly established embassies and foreign assistance programs with the aim of making Zanzibar a base for expansion into Africa. The U.S. consulate and the space tracking station were closed down. Cuban revolutionary leader Che Guevara even made a visit. However, political leaders in Zanzibar and neighboring Tanganyika responded by forming the new semi-unified nation of Tanzania in 1964. And communist influence there declined with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Some of you may have seen the book Revolution in Zanzibar on the table uh, near the photographs and in the entrance. The author is Donald Peterson, who was my replacement at the consulate. Dale and I met at Tufts University in 1953. He was a grad student and I was a junior majoring in economics. I decided to take the foreign service exam too, and I passed it prior to our marriage in 54 and my graduation with honors. Then we began our traveling life, although my career as a foreign service officer started only in 1972 
when the State Department changed the rules to allow both spouses of a married couple to be full-time Foreign Service officers. We were one of the first tandem couples in the Foreign Service. I became a consular officer, so my focus was in that area. Consuls perform a variety of services, visa issuance, for example. But most important, most important are the welfare and protection of our citizens abroad. At my first post, Caracas, I did mostly visa work, though as duty officer I handled cases of Americans in trouble. I had much more of that at my subsequent brief assignment as the sole consular officer at our embassy in Nicosia, Cyprus. In early 1975, shortly after the invasion of Cyprus by the Turkish army. I arrived there by ferry because the airport had been bombed. One wing of, of our embassy was on fire the day I arrived. When I reported for work, one of the Marine guards fitted me for a gas mask and put my name tag on it to be stored in the safe room. In an earlier uprising, our U.S. ambassador was killed inside the embassy by a sniper. So the U.N. people were uprooted by the fighting, and some killed or missing. So the U.N. stepped in to provide order. The green line drawn then to keep the opposing peoples apart, the Turkish Muslims in the north of the island and the Greek Orthodox people in the south. That line still exists. It is patrolled by the UN and few people get to cross it. But I worked on both sides of that line and crossed the no man's land in between. Americans in the North part had many problems. Some, so some frightened, so frightened they had abandoned their properties and those needed to be protected. A young man felt the threat, threatened because of his Greek background and was desperate to leave the Turkish occupied North to return to the U.S. I found and went to the Turkish general in charge to negotiate his release. I brought the monthly social security checks for retirees in the north of the island to their local villages along with the Turkish bankers so they could cash their checks. Dylan wants me to tell the story about the man who couldn't make it to the cafe where I was handing out the social security checks and this was the time of year for a questionnaire. So I went to his house not far away and he was on the porch and greeted me. So we went through what needed to be done and I explained to him about the questionnaire. One of the questions was, are you an American citizen? And he said, no, I couldn't pass the written test but I want to show you something. So he brought me inside to the door of his bedroom, and he said, I'm not a citizen. And I looked at the cover on the bed. The spread was a huge American flag. And he said, 
I'm not a citizen, but I'll die under that flag. The years 1974 and 1975 marked a low point for the United States in the Cold War. The West seemed weak and the Communists seemed to be on the advance worldwide. Domestically, President Nixon resigned to avoid impeachment. Vice President Agnew had been forced out 10 months earlier for corruption. We faced an oil embargo from the Middle East 11% inflation, and homegrown terrorism. Cubans supported Marxist governments ruled in Chile, Nicaragua, and Grenada. Saigon fell, and North Vietnamese forces were victorious in South Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. In the Middle East, Egypt accepted Russian arms, and together with Syria, attacked Israel in the Yom Kippur War. Israel staved off defeat only due to massive military aid flown in by U.S. military aircraft, which refueled at the U.S. airbase in the Azores. In Europe, a military coup in Portugal in April 25, 1974, overthrew the stagnant right-wing government of Portugal and installed an interim government heavily influenced by far leftist leaders. Long suppressed communists surfaced to dominate the press, many ministries of government, labor unions, and civil society. The State Department broke me out of my posting in Venezuela and sent me to Lisbon as labor attache. I sensed the urgency as the Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs gave me a personal 20-minute briefing in Washington before I departed. I'd been American Consul in Oporto, Portugal, for three years previously, so already had the language and in-country experience. During my assignment in Lisbon, I established useful relationships with four successive labor ministries in the revolutionary government and made introductions which eventually led to the establishment of a socialist-led labor federation in opposition to the existing communist-dominated labor confederation. In November 1975, armored units of the Portuguese army mounted a coup attempt to increase leftist control of the government. If the coup were successful, it would have been feasible for the Portuguese government to limit U.S. access to the U.S. air base in the Azores. Fortunately, Portuguese army commando and paratroop units opposed the coup, and after a two-day standoff, the armored units' tanks retreated. Eventually, the Socialist Party, led by Mario Suarez, moved Portugal back to a democratic, civilian-led government. Our ambassador to Portugal, to Portugal during this period was Frank Carlucci. After Portugal, he became National Security Advisor, then Deputy Director of the CIA, 
and later Secretary of Defense. I consider complimentary remarks from Carlucci as the peak of my career. After Lisbon, I was assigned in 1978 as labor attache in Brazil. In Sao Paulo, I met the leader of the Metalworkers Union, a charismatic personality named Lula. He was anxious to talk with me as I'd just come from Portugal, where there had been much labor unrest. Lula later entered politics and was twice elected president of Brazil, serving from 2003 until 2011. Luis, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva initiated policies which greatly expanded social welfare and the Brazilian middle class. He will be regarded as one of the most popular and finest presidents in the history of Brazil. My last assignment as labor attaché was to Embassy Rome in 1983. At this point in the Cold War, communist, communism was losing its appeal. The Italian Communist Party referred to itself as Eurocommunist. The leader of Italy's largest labor confederation, himself a communist, made a speech at a meeting I attended, at which he made a point of looking at me and quoting Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt. That was when I figured the U.S. had come a long way toward winning the Cold War. In Rome, we had the full range of consular cases, like the four Ds, death, disappeared, destitutes, and detained, in jail, that is. I worked on extradition treaties related to the mafia and an ongoing investigation in the U.S. called the Pizza Connection. The FBI had an office at the embassy. But the most dramatic cases arose from terrorist activities conducted by Muslim extremists. In the mid-1980s, the Palestine Liberation Organization found the Rome airport a tempting target. So many international flights. One morning, a Palestinian group invaded the airport check-in area used by TWA and El Al. With automatic weapons, they killed six Americans and wounded 15 Americans, among other casualties. Sadly, even a 12-year-old American girl lost her life. I rushed to the airport and later to local hospitals and kept the Department of State and concerned families in the U.S. informed. Around that time in the 1980s, another dramatic case arose on an Italian cruise ship in the eastern Mediterranean. Its name was the Achille Lauro, you may remember. A crippled American man, Leon Klinghoffer, was thrown overboard by the terrorists, and his lifeless body was found days later on a beach in Syria. The Ita Italian authorities informed me that the body would be sent to Rome 
for a coroner's examination before it could be sent to the family in New York for burial. It fell to me to make the arrangements for international shipment once the casket was ready. I draped it in an American flag. I was in London for my final Foreign Service assignment as Deputy Consul General. In 1990, the first Gulf War got underway, and my consular team had some experience <coughs> excuse me, in handling evacuations. Americans residing in threatened areas in the Gulf were provided charter flights to escape danger via flights to London's Heathrow Airport. My team met the flights, having arranged overnight hotel stays for them there at the airport, including dinner and the next day breakfast. <clears throat> Our team interviewed each family unit when they arrived to learn if they had some problem we could help with. And we did provide help many times overnight. The next day, we were there for them at the airport to see them aboard the charter flights which took them home to the U.S. We assisted that way more than a 1,000, maybe 1,500 people over several weeks. Dale's experiences with Cold War developments and mine with rising terrorist threats show perhaps that as one ideology loses some hold on power, another may be on the rise. We were fortunate to have the experience of living in a Muslim society in Zanzibar, 95% Muslim. In Cyprus, I saw how sad it can be when religions clash, and now it's 40 years still that way. They can't find a way to live in peace. I say, when the problem is clashing ideologies, bring in the diplomats. Hopefully they can find a solution. Thank you. <laughs> I think we have a little bit of time. If there are questions, we would be happy to try and respond. Yes, Mike. No, uh, we had training. We had to become pass a proficiency test, working level knowledge in Spanish to go to Latin America, working level knowledge in Portuguese to go to Portugal and Brazil, and Italian to go to Rome. So at various times, we've been fluent in three different languages. Use it or lose it. <laughs> yes, Brad. Uh, we hear a lot about the problems of security that's provided for our foreign service and State Department people, I'm thinking obviously of Benghazi and so forth. I, I wonder if you would just reflect on, did, did you, did it seem to you that generally security was ac 
adequate or, or is being in, in some danger simply part of the job? Being in danger is part of the job. I can think in every post we were at one time or another were greater or lesser degrees of security. In Zanzibar, when we opened a consulate, there was a firebomb the night before. Uh, at one time, we thought we were being kidnapped in Zanzibar. It was only an effort by one of the uh, opposition leaders who wanted to have a chance to talk with us but we were abducted from where we thought we were going to go and ended up in the middle of the jungle in a, a clearing around a campfire. And we ended up eating chicken wings and tossing the bones over in, into the jungle in the darkness. But it was a rather scary uh, initiation to Zanzibar. Um, Nicosia was the um, most armored place I ever served. Even the walls were uh, greased so people couldn't climb out on the outside. Marilyn dug scrapnel out of the woodwork in her office. Um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, in Rome, even, it was one of the most difficult places security-wise, even though the international temperature was winding down at that point. But uh, at Rome, we had the Red Brigades, and there were six incidents in the Red, of Red Brigade attacks during the time we were there. Two of them involved contacts of mine. One was an Italian senator who was in charge of the Labor Committee in the National Senate, and he'd been kneecapped by the Red Brigades, where they take a machine gun and cut you, hit, shoot your knees, so you have lifelong problems walking. And the other was an American professor who was going to the Catholic University to teach labor economics, and he was assassinated within two weeks of when he arrived. Uh, I'd never met him, but he, I certainly would have, he certainly would have been a contact of mine in Rome. Uh, in Rome, they checked under the cars with mirrors, make sure there were no bombs when you drove into the embassy. And this, and there was a mortar attack on the embassy from a hotel across the street. Um, you don't think of that kind of thing happening. Uh, this was just after the Italian premier, uh, Moro, had been kidnapped and kept captive in an apartment in Rome, and he ended up dead in a car trunk in the uh, in his apartment uh, in, in a city street. Uh, so uh, there were constant, there were frequent problems. But it goes with the business, it goes with the territory. Yes, Peg. Um, my question has changed since I first raised my hand. I, at first, I was wondering whether you were always in the country. It sounds like you were, for the most part. Um, what I would like to have you explain is it sounds like Marilyn worked for the consulate and you were with the embassy? 
Well, uh, the consulate is a part of the embassy. Can you explain that? Yeah. How, how that works? That's well, something I think people don't uh, like to know. Right. Uh, an embassy, of course, is in the capital, and an embassy would have four major sections. It would have a, a political section, a consular section, an economic section, and an administrative section. Um, and then it's, in some places, uh, the U.S. will have other offices outside the capital, and they can be independent consulates. Uh, the consuls do the same kind of work, but they're considered consular officers. Um, and uh, I was in the political cone uh, professionally. Marilyn was in the consular cone. And so that was made it possible for us both to be assigned at the same embassy, uh, but since we were in different functions. Okay? Yeah. Yes? Um, I heard, I actually have read a theory about a lot of the um, leftist, you know, leftist terrorism in Europe in the 50s as being settling old scores left over from World War II. And where I'm coming with this is that the French Maquis, you know, the guys that really helped us go ashore during D-Day and all that, they were French leftists who were really savaged by the Vichy French. And when, when 1945 came, they went for power and they went for it mercilessly, not just in France, but all over Europe. Is that a credible theory that it was settling old scores left over from the Second World War? I would say it was more a continuation of the leftist split, not necessarily a hangover from World War II, but just a continuing split between left and right that was continually being regenerated uh, by current events and a continuing competition between left and right. Uh, certainly, there were grudges, uh, grudges uh, from previous uh, tra traumatic experiences. But uh, I, I wouldn't say it was predominantly a hangover from World War II. All right. No further questions? I think, uh, Marilyn, do you have any other war stories you'd like to tell? I think you told about war stories. All right. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.